Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Before we get into the text and topic for today, we just wanted to pause here for a moment and pray for our country. Uh, no matter what you think about what's going on and who won and who lost, no matter which side you find yourself on, this moment is not about that. It's about the recognition that all of us can look out and realize there's a lot of division and hostility and some, well, it seems like every word is too light, tension. Uh, it's dangerous times. And uh, in times like this, we remember that the Bible inv- invites and even commands us to pray for those who are in leadership, whoever they may be, for our country, wherever we may live. And I find sometimes we just sort of allude to or, or, or say, yeah, the Bible says we should pray for them, but we don't often look at what it says. So I just wanted to read a couple verses to you where the Bible says to pray for leaders and countries and how and why, and then we're going to say a prayer together. It's in First Timothy chapter 2 that this gets talked about. So let me just read you a couple of verses. Paul is writing and he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. In verse 2, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And what we see here is that we're invited to pray for conditions of peace, and we're invited to pray for our leaders and ask that they make decisions that would bring about conditions of peace so that we, the church, can do the critical eternal work of sharing the gospel of God saving us through Jesus. And so if we could, let's just pause of the many things we could legitimately pray for and pray for a few of them. Father God, we're thankful to be together today as a body, and we pray for the country here in America that you have given us, and we, uh, we're grateful for this place, and we are aware of just the long, glorious history, and we look into the future and don't know what to expect, and we look at the present, and regardless of how we feel about it, we recognize it's a divisive, hostile, tense time, and so we pray. We pray for President Obama, we pray for President-elect Trump, and we ask that, uh, and, and those they lead along with, and those who are part of their teams, and we ask that you would get a hold of them and get a hold of their minds and their hearts and draw them close and, and bring them uh, all to repentance where that is necessary and encourage them all to move forward in paths that fit what you want. And at the end of the day, we just really do ask that your will would be done. We recognize that there's much work and much conversation and much to be done, uh, but we also recognize that we begin with prayer because you are uh, sovereign over all the nations in the, on the earth, and we are they are to you as, uh, as drops of water in a bucket. So be you and help us to be us faithfully in the times in which you have put us here in the places where we live. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So question, have you ever um, had one of those Sundays where you're like on the way to church and you already wish you could take the Sunday back? Like you didn't want, nobody in the family wanted to wake up for church, least of all you, and the morning just progressed as unplanned. You were annoyed at the kids for whining, they're annoyed at you for yelling, and you're all annoyed at Starbucks because the line was too long to make it to church on time. You elected to stay in that line nonetheless, and so you made yourselves late to church, making everybody more irritable, and you just pull up and you park and you breathe and you think to yourself, why are we here? Why are we here? 
And then you get out and you get the little kids over here to Children's Church and you send the big kids across the parking lot and you make your way to the cafe to get a cup of coffee to replace the one that spilled in the car. And you finally make your way in here and you sit down and you look to your right and left and you see some people you don't know. You maybe see some people you don't like and you're singing songs and then somebody gets up to talk, to preach. And you never think to yourself, like, why are we doing this? Why do we do this week after week after week? And, and truth is, there are plenty of reasons why you could tell yourself not to do this. I mean, this place is full of hypocrites, and pretty sure I might be one of them. And, and I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm spent, and I'd rather be relaxing or sleeping or fishing or watching football or whatever it may be. And you think these things. I don't know, maybe you think I'm not supposed to think these things because I work here and stuff, but I think these things too sometimes. And I actually have a personal discipline of mine, too. When I walk into church, I always stop and ask the question, why are we here? Like, why are we doing what we're doing? Why, why do we go about this process week after week after week? And in a word, the answer is, of course, Jesus, because he is, because he, he lived and died and, and rose again, or at least some think so, because he is everything we need. I do believe that what we always need most is a clear vision of Jesus, that what we need most is to see him for who he is. I think if this book, Scripture, is any kind of reliable guide to life, then, then we have to start here with this recognition that what we need most is a clear understanding of God's Son, of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. I think this book is clear from start to finish that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what is going on in your family, in your workplace, no matter what's going on in your mind and your heart as you think about the past and the present and the future, what we need more than anything else is to see him clearly so that we can follow him well. There is no problem in our lives for which we lack a Jesus solution. So Jesus is the reason you and I are here this week and hopefully next week and the week after that. But who, after all, is Jesus? What was he like? What is he like? Do you ever ask yourself these kinds of questions? What was Jesus like? Was he short or tall? Was he funny or serious? Was he sarcastic or was he sweet? Uh, was he more likely to laugh or cry or maybe both? Was he the Christ, the Savior, the Lord? Is he Christ, Savior, Lord? And what do those words even mean? And do you ever ask, what does Jesus think about the things that we think about? What if he were walking on the earth today? If he were on the earth today, would he come to Christ Church? If he did, what service would he come to? I'm sure you probably think this one, you know. Where would he serve? Would he be the one preaching? Would he even be here or would he be somewhere else right now? And if he were an American, who would he have voted for on Tuesday? And would he have voted at all? Would he have been on the ballot? What would he think about the results of this particular election? What would Jesus think? What would Jesus do? Would he, do you think Jesus would be more likely to wear leather and ride a Harley or to wear a three-piece suit and apply for a position as CEO? Which of the two, you know? Here's a question for you. Would Jesus carry a gun? You don't have to answer. <laughs> and if so, would he shoot it? And if so, what would he shoot it at? And is there really even any biblical way to know the answer to this question? And if there was, do we want to know it? Or would we rather just keep on assuming whatever we've been thinking before? Did Jesus really perform healings and exorcisms and other miracles? And if he did, why? Did he really tell stories, argue with religious leaders, play with children, choose 12 followers? Why? Was he a man? Was he God? And if the answer is both, then how in the world does that work? And this career of his, this ministry, was it organized around a central theme? Or was he just sort of going around doing whatever good was in front of him and hoping for the best? And what about this death that so obviously and defensively dominates his story? Did he know that it was coming? Did he plan for it? Did he welcome it? Did he resist it? Did he invest it with meaning? 
And why was his death not the end of the story, but in some strange way, another beginning? Who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? You see, the ugly truth is that you can find a picture of Jesus to match whatever you want. And if that's all you want, a Jesus to confirm what you already think, then you can look anywhere. But what if that's not all you want? What if you want the truth? Where can we find the truth about Jesus? And if that's the question, then the answer is right here. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are books of the Bible that we call Gospels. They're biographies of Jesus that are inspired by God to give you and I what we need, a true vision of Jesus. Look at the opening phrase of the Gospel of Mark, verse 1 of chapter 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, or about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Let's look at a couple of words there. Good news is, is a translation of the one word for gospel. The word gospel, that's what it means, good news or, or good report. Um, a report about things that have happened that are good for us. So you say to one another, do you want the good news or the bad news? Well, give me the good news. And then I tell you something good that has happened that provides a way for your life to be different, a way for your life to be better. That's, that's gospel, a good report about things that help us. And notice what Mark says about it. He says in this book that I'm writing, it's the beginning of the gospel. It's a fascinating word. Sometimes it's translated beginning. Usually it's translated like rule or standard. How is it that one word could be both beginning and standard or beginning and rule? And the answer is it's kind of like our word founder. If you're the founder of a company, then that means that you started it and you also determined the direction that it would take. So Mark is saying this is the first story and it is also the standard What we're writing here is the standard. If you want the truth about Jesus, start here. And that is exactly what we are going to do. We as a church are going to look closely, patiently, and attentively for a long, long, long time at the story of Jesus. Now, I believe that Mark first inspired, or God first inspired Mark to write his gospel, the gospel of Mark. And then around that time, in the late 60s of uh, first century AD, I think he inspired Matthew to write his gospel. Then sometime later, probably a decade and a half or so, Luke wrote his gospel, and then a bit later, John wrote his, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each writing their own different versions of the gospel. And in the first few centuries of the church, sometimes they would study an individual gospel, just one of them, the gospel of Mark, gospel of Matthew, gospel of Luke, gospel of John. But other times, they would, they would look at them all together as a whole, and they would, when they would mesh these four official versions together as a whole, they just called it the gospel. So that's what we're calling this journey, the gospel. You've got four journalists, just one Jesus though, not four different Jesuses, just one. You've got, you got four microphones, but there's only one Messiah, four reporters, one redeemer, four storytellers, one savior, four witnesses to what they're seeing, one word that they're looking at, four gospel writers, one essential gospel story. And we're studying it together in chronological order from start to finish, one Sunday at a time. That's what we're going to do. This is not just another series of sermons. This is a journey of discovery. We have no idea how long it will take, although we have our suspicions and it's going to be a while. And to be honest, we couldn't really care less that nobody ever does this. <laughs> Matter of fact, if you have friends at other churches that you tell them we're going through it, you know, life of Jesus chronologically, it's going to take like, like a long, 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 long time. And as we get into this and you're like, yeah, we're still in the same thing. We're still doing. And they're like, why are you doing this? You just tell them that your pastors are courageous. Or crazy, (laughs) like either one works, right? And either way, we are taking this journey together and it starts now. 
And we start today at the beginning, at the start of the stories. Now, the way you start a story says something about that story, and not just what you're talking about, but the greater context in which your story is relevant. I can remember when my daughter Claire was uh, was just 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 first starting to talk. She couldn't, not nowhere close to reading. But every time she'd open up a book, she would say, "Once upon a time," because <laughs> that's how her stories begin. Matter of fact, we're going to do a little literature quiz together today. So I'm going to, here's what I want to do. A little audience interaction. We're going to interact with one another today. So I hope that's okay with some of you. And the rest of you are going to just do this. But I want to tell you the opening lines to some famous books, some famous stories that some of you read, you know, back in junior high and high school. And you tell me if you know what story it is. Okay? All right? So let's just practice with an easy one. In the beginning, God created the earth or heavens and the earth. The Bible. You can speak. Wonderful. Okay. So here's a couple others. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities. I'm hearing it whispered. Yeah. Yeah. Some of you may know this one. The female population in the room is a little more likely to know this one. Although if you guys know it, don't be ashamed. I didn't, but I will now. Here's Here's the opening line of this book. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Any guesses? Pride and Prejudice. Have some down here that know it. All right, good, good. Here's a short opening to a long book that we've all heard of, but maybe like, you know, 0.5% have read. The first three words are, call me Ishmael. Moby Dick, you guys have read it. At least you started it. I don't know how far you got, (laughs) but congratulations. Here's one, you, I've not read the story, and I don't know that many will have, but you'll know if you listen to the line, you'll know what story it is. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan, very good. And finally, of course, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yes, we're all on the same page. Excellent. How you start a story means something. And this story in here is no different. The Gospels are no different. Now, we're going to do this over the first couple weeks. Today, we're going to examine the opening lines of the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. And then next week, uh, Mark Christian is going to talk about the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to look at three of them today and one of them tomorrow. And today, in order to hear, because they opened in different ways. And so we've got to find a way to kind of tie them together, you know? And so in order to hear these three openings, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark, Luke, and John, in the same key, we're going to ask of them the same question. What if Jesus never came? They're all writing stories because they believe Jesus came. And we're going to look at the way they start the story and ask, what if Jesus never came? We're going to get three different answers to this question. What if Jesus didn't actually come? We'll start with the Gospel of Mark. Number one, if Jesus never came, politics is our best hope. Uh, you may be wondering, why are you saying that? I mean, I know like, like okay, like what, Gospel of Mark, what? If you want to understand the opening phrase in Mark's Gospel, you need to know something about what was happening at the time in Mark's world. He, he wrote the Gospel in the late 60s, and it was by all counts if a crazy time. If you were to ask somebody living at the time in the Roman Empire... Describe your world for me. Describe like the fabric of society. They would say chaos. That's, that's what's going on. 
In Jerusalem, where Mark is from, they're in the middle, or towards the end rather, of a long four-year war, this huge war between the Jews on the one hand, who are fighting for their belief in God, and the Romans on the other hand, who are fighting for political supremacy. And this war took four years, 66 to 70, and we believe Mark's writing about the year 69, when things back home are in absolute and utter chaos. The Romans are sieging them, and it's just, it's getting nasty, it's getting ugly. And not only are things pretty crazy back where Mark is from, but Mark is in and writing for the church in Rome, and things are even worse there. They're an even bigger mess. If you're a historian or like a history buff or a total nerd, you might have heard of the year of four emperors. It was AD 69. And these were four emperors, not because, you know, they kept getting sick and dying, and not because they just voted a lot and had peaceful transfers of power, but because one guy would kill the guy in power and take his throne. Four in one year. Absolute chaos. And everybody in Mark's world is looking around going, where can we find relief? Where can we find something to put our world back together? And Jews, they hoped for the most part for a violent revolution. We need a deliverer. We need a Messiah to come and save us from the Romans. Save us from those who oppress and exploit it. We want revolution. For their part, the Romans didn't want revolution so much as we just want a new good emperor. A new leader who can lead us into a time of peace. A new person who can, who can stand ahead of us and guide us well. And into this world, Mark drops a bomb, Mark 1.1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Messiah is a word that recalls Jewish hopes for revolution. The good news about the Messiah, the one who, who they hope would come and deliver them. And Son of God is a phrase not only familiar to those who know the Old Testament, but to all Romans who called the emperor Son of the Gods. And so Mark writes in no uncertain terms, and he says, I'm announcing to all that only in Jesus will you find what you're looking for. And by the way, it probably won't look like what you think. But if Mark 1.1 were never written, if he had no cause to say this, then violent revolutions or new leaders would be our only option. And we'd all have to continually look forward to the next leader. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm sure like we're all super excited for another election cycle. Like how many want to go through that again right now? No. Leave the pop-up ads and, and all the rest of it. Like, no, just give us at least a few years. Yet that is the best the world has to offer. I'm not trying to be snarky. And I do believe this point comes out of the text. That is the best the world has to offer. The hope that the next person in power will be better than the last. If Jesus never came, that's the only hope we've got. Secondly, if Jesus never came, we're stuck in darkness, death, judgment, and lies. How's that for positive thinking? This all sounds terrible. We're stuck in darkness, death, judgment, and lies. And yet I think that's precisely what John wants us to see. You read the whole opening, just, or you heard it read just, just a few moments ago. Let me, let me key you in on a few primary lines that I want to draw our attention to from the way John starts his gospel. John uh, chapter 1 verse 4 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. A couple of questions for you. What is the opposite of light? Darkness, yes. I'm glad some of you are aware of the opposite of light, yes. And what is the opposite of life? Death. Without Jesus, we can't see God, and therefore we can't find life. That's what John's saying. Let me read you another one, 114. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. What is the opposite of truth? 
Lies, yeah. And what is the opposite of grace? Well, that's a tough one. Getting the judgment I deserve is probably a decent answer to the question. So without Jesus, our best option is to hide from the truth, but it won't work because we still won't avoid the all-seeing eye of God's judgment. That's what John's saying. If Jesus never came, we're stuck in darkness, death, judgment, and lies. And lastly, if Jesus never came, we have no news to report. Bottom line, there is no story to tell. Which brings us to the start of the Gospel of Luke. And I think as we go through this that a lot of you are going to find that Luke is your favorite because Luke reminds me a lot of us. He didn't grow up with these stories and so he goes into investigation mode. Let me read you how Luke's story starts. And if you ever think, well, the Bible is just a bunch of fairy tales, notice the introduction of Luke because he doesn't seem to be saying this is a fairy tale. Here's how he starts. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that's who he's writing for, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, Luke was not Jewish, Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John, they grew up with the Bible. They grew up with the Old Testament stories. They were looking for a Messiah. Luke was not a part of that group. So he didn't grow up with all this God stuff, but he heard about it. And as a young historian, he put on his little Lois Lane hat and he got to work. And he went about asking questions and doing research and investigating what actually is going on here. He describes himself in terms like a, like a pesky reporter. He carefully investigated everything. In other words, I got up in people's faces and on their nerves because I never stopped asking questions. So here's a question. What if he found out it was all just an exaggeration or a hoax or a mistake? You ever thought about that? Like what if he set out to do this research and found nothing? Would we still have a gospel of Luke? Of course not. We wouldn't be here. Had nothing happened, there would be nothing to write. No good news to report. No story to tell. But that's not where Luke's research led him. As he dug into some of these things, he learned about stories he couldn't deny. He discovered multiple layers of witnessing. So he's talking to those who are friends of Jesus, and they're saying things like, yeah, Jesus sure seemed to like to pick arguments and fights with some of the religious leaders that everybody else thinks are pretty cool. And then he's talking to the opponents, saying, tell me about this Jesus. And they say, yeah, I remember him. He sure seemed to like to argue with our most respected scholars. And Luke's going, look, you guys are saying it, and you guys are saying it. It must have really happened. So Luke finds not only multiple layers of witness, but eyewitness accounts talking to a person who was outside the tomb when Lazarus came forth. And he says, you mean to tell me that you you knew this guy, Lazarus, and you saw him die and embalmed, and they put him in a tomb, and four days later, you saw him walk out. The guy's like, yeah, 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 I did. Totally saw it. Did he stink? Yeah, yeah, he totally did. Yeah. Did not smell good in that moment. And Luke comes across embarrassing details, like the time when Jesus finally tells his followers, hey, I am actually the Messiah. What you hope for is true. I'm the one, and I came to die for the sins of the world. And then Peter, the leader of your group, took him aside and rebuked him? Your leader that much didn't understand Jesus? You you put that in your story? You wouldn't make this up. And then wait a second. So you're telling me that in our world where, where women, where females aren't even allowed to testify in a court of law because they're not considered legitimate witnesses, you're telling me that the first people to see and report the resurrection of Jesus were ladies. Yeah, yeah, they totally were, yeah. 
You wouldn't make this stuff up. And then to top it all off, as he goes about this, what he discovers most of all is an undeniably empty tomb, which if it were still full, people would just point to it and say, Jesus is still dead. You can't make this stuff up. So Luke is doing this research, and, and if any of these points at research led to a dead end, that would be the end of the story. But it wasn't. It was the beginning. Because after meticulous examination of the details, he concluded that this is for real, that Jesus really did come. And because he came, first of all, we have a story to tell. You have news to report. You do. It is true news, and it is good. It is a story worth telling. It is a story that once you understand it, you can't keep it to yourself. You ever had these kind of experiences you just got to talk about? I remember this time when I was younger. It was in between my freshman and sophomore years of college, and I'd gone back home that summer to just spend some time hanging with and loving on my family, and I was preparing to come back to college, and it was just getting everything ready and kind of just packing all the boxes and and whatnot, and while I'm doing this, I get this phone call, and uh, they bring, remember remember like when cordless phones were like the coolest invention ever? It's like forward thinking. We had cordless phones and pagers. Anyway, so they bring me this cordless phone out in the front. Or somebody's on the phone for you. I got on the phone. This guy's like, yeah, my name is Vernon Coleman. I work at South Point Chevrolet. And I just, I just, just wanted to tell you, Michael, God wants to bless you with a car today. And I'm like, what, what, what is this? Like, who are you? You know, it's like, yeah, my Vernon Coleman, come down and see me. I got something for you to come look at. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you got something for you to come look at. And when I come down there, God wants to bless me with a car so long as I have $10,000 or whatever it may be. But I figure this might be a prank call, in, in which case whoever is doing this is really good. Um, or this may just be like a random call through the phone book. Maybe that's a thing. But it doesn't happen every day. So we traveled all the way across town. We hopped in the car, got out there, made our way to the lot, found this guy waiting for us. Sure enough, this big, tall car salesman. I'm Bernard Coleman. Good to meet you, son. Good to meet you, too. Why am I here? You know? And he starts walking me along the sidewalk. And he's like, so, young man, I hear you're planning to serve in ministry. And I'm thinking, this is creepy now. Like, who are you, and how do you know these details about my life? And as we're walking along, he says, what do you think of that? And he points over, and I see this white Jeep Grand Cherokee. And I'm thinking, I'm 19 years old. I'm a 19-year-old dude. What do you mean, what do I think of that? I think it's the coolest thing I've ever seen, you know? And he's like, well, what if I told you this was yours? And he handed me the key. My jaw drops. I hop in. There's gift cards for gas and oil changes. I get back out. Don't know what to say. He says to me, by the way, they paid for your tags and insurance, too. I am floored. And then he tells me the clincher. He says, just in case you're wondering, I cannot and will not tell you who did this. To this day, I have my suspicions, but I do not know who bought me a Jeep. I can tell you this. I told that story a thousand times. Like the very next day, I go back to college and everybody I saw, hey, how was your summer? Awesome. Guess what happened in mine? (laughs) Somebody gave me a Jeep and I told the whole thing. And my friends got so, I told this so much, my friends got annoyed at me and started making fun of me. Like I'd hear them playfully while I'm telling the story over here. They're They're over there like mimicking my every word because they've heard it so many different times. But I don't even care. Like this just happened to me and I want to share it. So let's think about this realistically with the story of Jesus in the Gospels. It would make sense. It would actually make sense if every time you talked to someone, you're thinking in the back of your mind, I have good news for this person. I got something I got to tell them. And you're looking for for ways to kind of naturally insert Jesus into the conversation. Not out of some sort of crazy manipulation tactic or not because you need to feel better about what you believe so you need them to believe it, but because you just love them and you, are, you have this well-grounded enthusiasm regarding the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us. Now, I know it may sound weird 
And I'm not even telling you to try to think like that yet. I do think it may happen organically as we look at the story. I recognize we may not be there yet. Luke is writing, remember to this Theophilus guy, Luke is writing to someone who likes the Jesus story, but he's not 100% sure he buys the whole thing. I think many of us are exactly there. And that's why we're doing this, this, this journey. That's why we're taking this walk together. And I do think that if and as we really get what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are talking about, we might become weirdos who can't shut up about Jesus. <laughs> Maybe not, but we'll see. Either way, you have news to report, a story to tell. It is good and it is true. Secondly, we have received life, light, grace, and truth. We have everything we need. We have received life and light and grace and truth. This is the gospel of John again. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only who came to us full of grace and truth. We have everything we need. He brings life, and death starts working backwards. We depend on external things for life, air, water, food. God alone is immortal, has life within himself. And he shares this life with us through Jesus. Jesus brings light that overpowers the darkness. The only one who could make God known has made God known. The word became a visible walking demonstration explanation of this invisible God. He came and revealed to us who God is, which means we're not in the dark anymore. We actually know him. And just like turning on the lights enables you to get up and move around without falling falling all over the place, this light brings with it a whole new path forward. Jesus brings grace to cover judgment and truth to replace the lies. Catch these things. Do you ever feel like you're kind of walking around in the dark, just not sure where to go? Jesus is the light. Do you ever feel like death is crowding around in on you, threatening to devour? Jesus is life. And this life light brings truth that replaces the lies that keep us from seeing what's going on in here and out there. And this life light brings grace to cover the judgment we actually and rightly deserve. Yet if Jesus came, we have everything we need. Because he came, we're good, so long as we stick with him. And then finally, number three, we have a better hope. We have a better hope. He is our hope. It is a good hope. It is the only best hope there is. I'll be straight up. You cannot live without hope. I don't think this is an exaggeration. You cannot live without hope. The day you stop hoping will be the day we start planning your funeral service because you cannot live without hope. And every day until that day, you will either hope in Jesus or you will hope in something else. I hope you choose wisely. As for us, we have a Messiah, one who came not to break his opponents, but to die so that even they might find life. We have a son of God. Focus not on how he can secure his own power and make sure we all feed his ego or earn him a reputation. He he doesn't need money. He doesn't need power. He doesn't need glory because he's always had it. And he gave it up to come here and hurt and cry and sneeze and eat and die. He is wise and powerful and selfless and victorious. We have a new savior, a new leader, a king, Not the king we deserve, but the one we desperately need, Jesus. He's the one you've been looking for wherever you've been looking. And if you don't believe me, I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm inviting you to believe him. 
I'm not trying to tell you a lot of here's what you should do as a result of this today. But what I do want to encourage you to do as we begin this is open up the book and start reading through the Gospels and come here with us and let's walk through them together. We are about to take a walk and not a short one. By the time we get to the end, none of us will be the same. I can promise that it will get difficult and that at certain points we'll discover sore spiritual muscles we didn't even know we had. It'll be long, it'll be surprising, it'll be liberating, it'll be demanding, and along the way we will see Jesus. That's not a journey I want to miss. That's a discovery I need. You? Father God, be with us as we step out on this journey. Help us to make the time in our lives to engage your story and help us to listen to it well together. We want to see your son. We ask that you would help us to do so well. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.